to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Hello, dear ones. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is on social media. You can find out more about I See That's Blink of an Eye initiatives, learn more about the science behind spinal cord injuries, and build community with others in the spinal cord injury crisis time, as well as the trauma healing space by following I See That on Instagram at I See That Nonprofit. That's spelled the letters I C T H. A-T, Nonprofit, and on Facebook at the URL www.facebook.com backslash ic.that.org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. I am thrilled about the Blink of an Eye Teams, a service of I See That. They are providing emotional, spiritual, and mental health support, as well as expert spinal cord injury, logistical, and medical navigation information, and tips for spinal cord injury families at a time when these families' lives are turned upside down. There are very few medical experts in the United States with spinal cord injury expertise. I see that has gathered a blink-of-an-eye spinal cord injury medical expert opinion panel that is providing essential medical information for families and medical teams so they can make more informed decisions. They have some of the top SCI spine surgeons in the United States on their panel. They are also recruiting pulmonologists who have spinal cord injury expertise. Please, Reach out to them, as there are very few in the United States, at www.icthat.org. Medical teams and SCI families in the crisis days do not have to navigate complicated spinal cord injury alone. As Margaret Mead said, there is no doubt what a small group of committed citizens can do to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Welcome to Episode 10, Frequent Flyers, Jump Hugs, and Doctor Connections for Powerful Rehab. Settle in, take a deep breath, and anticipate new ways you might advocate for powerful rehab for your loved one in a complicated medical time. Here we go. 
We ended episode nine on a cliffhanger when Billy sent me the text message that Archer's rehab doctor had said she didn't see the Archer I saw and that they were going to send Archer home. Discharge him. No, I could not let that happen. I was aware of a knee-jerk desire to push her away, to get her out of our way for what needed to happen here, to get Archer off a ventilator and then walking again. My mind was racing, and I felt my body getting big, braced for a fight. And then, as quickly as that surge had happened, I was aware of a different sensation a softer sort of fuzziness in my body. Yes, it was a vibration, like a low electrical current. Archer did have the potential for rehab. I had to help her see it. Family and Friends Update, Day 51, Day 21 at the Shepherd Center. It is late at night now. I wish I could stop and say, so there it is, the last couple days. Awesome. And let's talk tomorrow. But there's more. I will tell you that last night Archer had six suctions three of which set off the alarms on his respirator monitor, such that the team came to us before I went to them. On two of those occasions, Archer was sleeping out of exhaustion, but his body was in respiratory distress, too low, and the mucus was thick and deep. I comforted both Archer and myself in saying Hail Marys to myself silently. And I told Archer between suctions, as he was trying to rest, to take in enough oxygen, and to be ready to get started again. There are people praying right now for you, my darling. Right now, at this very moment. Feel their love and God's peace. Rest. And then boom, The balloon bag was removed from his trach and the suction began again. And in the next breath, I was saying like a football coach as he bounced and writhed, Yes, yes, Archer. Awesome job. Cough that sucker up. Here it comes. You can do it. Yes, it's almost out. Isn't that just the craziest combination? But it's the way it is. I'm also realizing in the wee hours this morning, that I am having to use more and more effort to hold down Archer's left arm during each suctioning episode. Lord only knows that it's perhaps getting stronger with all the exercise during the day. And now, during the night, with all these suctionings, that is progress too strength. I could see the markers of Archer's progress, even if others could not. They were more like little butterfly wing flutters 
perhaps hard to see, but I could see them because I was bedside and had the whole picture. Those tiny changes gave me more hope than I can express. I knew God was working on this miracle. I just knew it. At the time, it was late September. As you know, back to school season. I truly thought that Archer would be able to return to school, even if a month late. I was counting the days staying in close contact with the administration of McDonough School and also planning for how to get home to see my youngest son, Dutch. There were always many balls in the air to juggle. I remember imagining in my mind seeing both of my youngest sons back at school, happy, doing well in their normal routines of our life. We just had to muscle through this hard time at Shepherd. The ironic and crazy part is that I yearned to take Archer home. And I yearned to be home too. But I felt it just wasn't time yet. I closed my eyes and wrote more on my family and friends update about Archer. So another night for us both of maybe three or four hours of sleep, broken up in one hour intervals as the deep suction episodes happen around four or five of them throughout the day, maybe more. And then 9 p.m., 11.30 p.m., 1.30 a.m., 2.30 a.m., 5.45 a.m., 6.45 a.m., and 7.30, causing the lights to be thrown on and the team to go at it as Archer gasps and rises. Last night was especially tense because both the alerts on the respiratory were going off, low VT spontaneous and too low tidal volume at the same time. When usually it's Archer who awakens unable to breathe and needs a suction as he clicks for me and I get a nurse before the monitor goes off. What I was also doing between the nightly suctions and assisting Archer to attempt rehab daily was consulting with someone I had not seen in a while, but whom I knew to be an expert in breath work. And thanks to the way the world goes round, as John Prine would say, she had been a close friend of mine for a number of years. Jessica Dibb in Baltimore, who ran the Consciousness School and was the director of the Global Breathwork Alliance. I knew from our work together in past years what a gift it is that we have the ability to breathe. The breath, whose sole purpose it is to breathe us into life and through our lives. Breathing. It's a human right, and it's divinely given. I had relied on breathing exercises for myself and my clients to center ourselves through conflict. Taking the time to pause on focused breathing can combat 
things that plague us in our everyday lives. Anxiety, dread, fear, trauma. Oh, the list goes on. Jessica has an especially amazing understanding of the power of breathwork. And I leaned into her wisdom and support. I texted her often. And she affirmed what I would report seeing in Archer. And she also affirmed that those little butterfly winks of potential, which I saw, were real. And that what was happening with Shepard wanting to send Archer home was just a bump. Just a bump. I had the opportunity to interview Jessica Dibb many years later. Here are some excerpts, and you will hear from her again in future episodes. I think that when we bring our willingness and our attention and our whole bodies and hearts and heads and spirits to anything, we land up not only learning, but touching sort of the most sacred part of what's actually trying to happen. And it becomes like an initiation. And that's how I feel. I feel like it was an initiation for me and for you and to some extent, humbly to say for Archer. And, um, you know, I can say, Louise, that the beginning of it was actually even before you called me, I've always found this so remarkable. I don't know if you remember that we actually hadn't seen each other in a, in quite some time. It had been, you know, for various reasons. So other than seeing each other at, at Convergence Leadership, we hadn't really spent any time together. And my father had moved in with me. That was the summer that my father moved in with me. And I was so excited for you to meet him because he is just such a, a great intellect and heart around the idea of world peace and a world without war. And so we met, you know, like, and we had not done that in years. You and I and my dad met. At Linwood. I, at Linwoods. And I think, if I'm correct, you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think it was literally on August 4th. It was the day before. That is my recollection. That would make so much sense because I've been, I was just talking to James Schmucker, who rescued Archer, his mother, in an interview about something that happened the night of August the 4th. And I'm like, I was just coming home, like into the house. I'm like, where had I been? Yeah. I had gone back to Baltimore and then I'd made the round trip. Yeah. And so, you know, we had this beautiful meeting and your book had just been, you know, like it was being published and you, you gave us a copy and you shared with us what, and what Orin's is. And then, you know, you have, you have such a spark and such a spirit. You're always wanting people in my experience, Louise, um, to have their contact with you elevate them in some way. And so I will never forget that we just had this amazing connection again. And there, my dad really loved you. And I was so excited for your book. We even said a prayer 
I know you told me you were going to be going back up to Cape May. Wow. And, and you showed us what an orange was, of course. And then you, we were walking out of the restaurant and my dad and I were there and we had this idea of doing an orange that was my dad and I with our arms around each other and I had one arm up and he had the other arm up. And that is one of the most precious pictures of my whole life. And it was your idea to take that picture. Oh my gosh. I'm so, being flooded with that memory. Yeah. I, would, I would not have remembered that altogether. Exactly. And then literally, you know, I hear, so I felt this amazing connection with you. That's what I should say. Connections, memorable, meaningful connections. Why they happen, when they happen. Orens was the nonprofit my husband Billy and I had launched just three weeks before Archer was injured on August 5th. Orens, it's O R A N S, it's an ancient word, and it means to be open. It's actually a spiritual word with its root in medieval Latin, to pray, to be pleading, to be open to receive, to be vulnerable, to ask, to be receptive. It was also ironic. It's literally the word for the posture of lifting your arms and opening your hands to ask Billy and I had big dreams to bring relational awareness to everyday people like you and me, this light to the world, and to start a movement for relational interaction. Life, oh my golly, it can be so ironic. I am touched, though, by Jessica and a new reminder that there are no accidents. Our lives are a series of free will choices that if we're lucky enough, we'll be in tune with a higher vibration. Maybe I should say, if we're awake enough, we'll be in tune with a higher vibration from divine source, our soul's mission here on earth. And then in our human experience, Something can happen to make it feel like the fabric of our lives that just gave us comfort is ripped away from us. But then we find new threads, new golden threads we never imagined that were there all along. It's a lot to consider, but how else do we explain the many, many times when our lives are woven with other strands of the other parts of our lives, as if they were always braided together, always there, but are unnoticed and then noticed at the moment we need to see them. Divine. And then literally, I get the news 
not initially through you, but through our dear friends, Jan and Rachel. And I can only tell you that I was electrified in that moment because I, if I, you know, just may be authentic here on this amazing transmission that you're trying to bring to everybody. I felt in that moment like it couldn't have been an accident that we reconnected after all that time right the day before. It just, it was like one of those feelings that went through my body. And I can remember. Oh, Jessica, it's happening to me right now. I can remember walking around my, my home and my, you know, yard. This is why I wanted to be outside because so much of the connecting that I do that we will talk about, I actually go on to the, to the beautiful sanctuary grounds here. And so, you know, I just think of, I mean, I spent a lot of time with Archer walking on these grounds. Anyway, I remember literally from the moment I heard the news, I, it was as if I entered into a state of prayer and readiness. I didn't even know what I was being readied for. I didn't know if what I was being readied for was just that I would be in a state of prayer and support for you. But it was this incredible feeling of just like, as if light was everywhere and I was so awake and I was just waiting, you know, like thy will be done. You know, that's how it felt. And then it was just a few days later that you called me. Like, I think it was about 48 hours later or something like that. Wow. Energy, transmissions from God, the divine experience. We're very blessed to even be aware of how it can move us mm -hmm. to right action. Yeah. And I'm really curious before we, we unfold that of like, what do you remember about that phone call when you reached out to me? You know, what was happening for you? I remember that everything was wrong in the hospital. The medicine was wrong. The advice was wrong. The machines were wrong. The, and I don't, I don't mean like wrong in the sense of like it's wrong, like, you know, judgment, but it wasn't right. And I knew, I knew Archer could breathe on his own if we could summon his will. But I also knew, because he had already told me, his will was, was completely there. It would just get clouded by all those narcotics that they were giving him. So... Everything about all of that, it was just, it was just not right. And it was in a time of saying the rosary mm -hmm. that I, I knew I have to call it. It was like, Jessica, Jessica, I've got Jessica. It was like that. Well, I remember that you started, well, first of all, it was, I had been in this place of, you know, thy will be done and waiting. I was felt like I was being prepared for something. And then I just felt so touched and moved that you called. And when you did, it was as if 
the waiting period was over, like the, the doors swung open and something began. And right from the beginning, it felt like all of the knowledge that I had, you know, gathered from my experiences with, you know, for instance, my sister and my brother both having, you know, passed away from cancer and just all my hospital experiences and having friends that had cancer and we did all this stuff and they lived and it just, it was, and, and everything about breathing that had been such, you know, like intrinsic to my life. It's like, it just suddenly was all there. And what I could feel, Louise, and again, you know, just being incredibly authentic is so, you know, I, yes, I can sense things and it felt like the place where you were, the hospital, I could feel this need for appreciation for them because they were doing the best they could, you know, they, and they did, I mean, thank God the hospital was there so that he didn't die. Yes, thank God. Thank God for our nurses, doctors, hospitals, rehab facilities, and more. It is possible to be grateful and wary at the same time. We found ourselves struggling to find our way in a new, difficult, and seemingly contradictory experience with Archer toggling two very distinctively different worlds, rehab and intensive care. I was aware of my built-in suspicion of medical authority now that we had had our share of medical errors on this journey. And yes, I was wary of the authority of doctors even though we also so desperately needed their expertise to help Archer breathe and live. I was toggling my own contradictory inner worlds. Maybe you have been in the same predicament with a complicated medical situation. I've come to learn that this is a common situation, sadly, for many spinal cord injury families in these first weeks of injury because so very few hospitals have spinal cord injury expertise. But here at the Shepherd Center, which had a great deal of spinal cord injury rehab expertise, what I had come to learn was that none of these rehab specialists, none of them knew Archer's whole medical picture. And they certainly didn't know the whole patient whom they were treating. It was understandable, but it haunted me. We had to stay Archer strong. I continued writing my family and friends update. But the real reason last night was especially delicate was because of what happened the night before. The day before last, 
we had three code blues. It's why you didn't hear from me about these celebrated moments. We've been exhausted. Yes, three code blues. It was harrowing. Five white coats and blue scrubs from the ICU medical team came rushing through Archer's door, and as they did, I could hear the eerie sound like an evacuation horn going off in the hallway, and the repeated announcements like a war camp, code blue, code blue, Archer? It was weird because we were both just dozing in the late afternoon, and it was honestly like stormtroopers pushing down the door and storming us. It was his heart racing at 153 beats per minute and his pacemaker rapidly firing as appeared on the monitor in the intensive care unit. He had just had a CPT treatment, a chest physiotherapy to shake up the mucus in his lungs. Thank the Lord they still had Archer on telemetry to still be watching him in the ICU unit. After prodding and looking and talking with Archer, They were mystified, and it was tense. They decided to recreate it in four hours, believing it was likely what they called an artifact of the leads that were shaken up by the CPT treatments. Archer did not seem phased. At 8 p.m., the CPT vest was started again. And sure enough, the staff came racing in as the alarms were going off and his heart was racing again. Then they stopped the treatment and the EKG would reflect he was back to his normal. I was impressed the way the ICU nurse, our old friend of 14 days, worked with the rehab respiratory therapist whom she had never worked with before on the phone with each other in real time, giving information back and forth for the next 30 minutes or so, so they could be watching the monitors and also getting real time information from Archer. They had a number of questions about the pacemaker and its settings and its parameters relating to Archer's having runs of SVT, which are supraventricular tachycardia, or fast heart rhythms in the upper part of the heart, which appeared to have AV spikes, that's atrioventricular for both the upper and lower chambers of the heart, and the spikes would cease once treatment was complete or terminated, when essentially the switch to the hoses on the machine that blow air into the vest to make it vibrate violently are no longer inflated. But Archer needed that machine to clear the mucus so he could breathe and live. But what was baffling is that Archer remained asymptomatic. His vital signs taken afterwards were normal and he felt nothing queer or unusual. Archer and I had the same memory of the pacemaker's parameters as I recalled 50 and he recalled 60. And I knew how the pacemaker was wired for the upper ventricle and only the lower as a backup because 
of all those conversations I had had with the cardiac surgeon in New Jersey. As an aside, I thought it was noteworthy that Archer had not missed a beat on his memory of details like that when he was in so much pain and had been on a good dose of narcotics during those days in the ICU. One of the things that alleviated these crazy scares and gave Archer something to look forward to was seeing his friends and knowing they were coming. I could see that for a high schooler, that was the best rehab and kept Archer going. I knew I had to keep it going for him to thrive. I couldn't imagine what was going on for him in his head. And when I stopped to think about it in the wee hours of the nights between suctions and scares, that is what also scared me. We heard from a couple of Archer's amazing friends, Price Campbell and Riley Thacker, in our last episode, who came to visit. And the other friend who also came for that first visit was Jeffers Inslee. Their presence initiated a whole system of operations for how we would get other friends to Atlanta to visit Archer. Well, of course, there were the Atlanta Angels, my three dear college friends who did pickup and chauffeur duty. But how did those kids get there, you might ask? Well, Jeffers' dad, Ned Inslee, was the person behind the scenes who helped make it happen. But I had not really known Ned that well back then. He was a dad of one of Archer's good friends. His involvement started when he first brought the kids to see Archer in the ICU back at Atlanticare in New Jersey. Here's how that happened, as Ned recalled when I interviewed him years later. I do. I mean, I, I remember it vividly. Yeah. Ah. We had um, we had made a plan. Well, first of all, I didn't realize at the time that you were a big texter. So I was emailing. And I emailed you midweek to ask if it would be possible for Jeffers and a couple of friends to come down. And Billy responded first and said that, Again, I, looking back on it, it's kind of humorous. Billy's first response was, it, it really wasn't a good idea and not a good time. And so I accepted that and, and, you know, anticipated it, to be honest. A couple of hours later, another email came through from you that said, Ned and Billy in Peran's smiley face, <laughs> actually, it would be a great time. We'd love to have you. Is that right? And I thought to myself, okay, well, now I'm in a little bit of an awkward spot. Um, what do we do? So I responded to you something along the lines of, well, okay, let's see how things are tomorrow morning. We were going to come the next day. And if everything still looks good, then, you know, then we'll come. And I think I asked you to let me know, um, because I, you know, I, we didn't know each other that well and I wasn't texting you and I wasn't in regular contact. 
So I waited to hear from you the next day and I didn't hear from you. So we didn't come. And eventually you and I reconnected uh, the next day. I think I sent you an email saying, I'm sorry, it didn't work out. We'd love to make another time to come. And uh, you said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Didn't realize you were waiting for it. Anyway, it was a misunderstanding. So we replanned it for the following weekend. And that's when a few of us came down. Jeffers, Alex Harmon, Riley, and um, Kellen Rogers. I was, I was wondering if, I, if we could remember who yeah. all came. You brought a carload of yep. kids. Yep. So those are four of Archer's best, you know, yep. really dear Close friends. friends. Close friends. And you know what? They wanted to drive down by themselves. You probably, I don't think I ever told you this. That, no. that was the plan from, from their perspective. And they were, what, 17? Yeah, just. Yeah. yeah. And I think Jeffers was going to be 17. So exactly, right before, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, no. You're not going to drive three hours down there to this magnitude of an experience, emotional experience, and do it on your own. It's, it's you don't. You don't know what you're about to face. It's interesting just um, how a parent has this experience of the gravity Mm -hmm. of a situation and these opportunities for kids to grow up, but not quite driving to one of these kinds of Mm. events on their own. No. And, you know, they were all so anxious to see Archer and, and, you know, had been following whatever news we could get just so rap- rapidly, they were just, just desperate to see him. Mm. And that he was, we hoped, going to live. It looked like he was going to live. And they just wanted to see him. And the gravity of the situation wasn't clear to them. But it was to us. And so I said, you know, I'll drive you down. And... I'm happy to do that, but there's just no way you're going to do this on your own. Because, you know, I had a sense of what they were going to face, but they had no idea. He was Um, so happy to see his friends. So what we also learned from that, the cardiologists and the techs were noting that Archer's heart rate, which was so low, Mm -hmm. that's when they had declared him to have a bradycardial heart, would elevate when he would have these exchanges with friends. So it was like the only reason why they were even allowing it because Archer himself was thriving because of of you all and friends coming. Well, that was just so uplifting to see him. Well, that visit sealed a friendship for me with Ned because it was the day he and the kids helped me relocate Archer in our healing sanctuary to another sunnier and larger room at Atlanticare Hospital, as you might remember my telling you. I remember Ned up on a chair hanging prayer flags around the ceiling of the room to help me. You don't forget things like that. It also meant I added him to my intimate family and friends text chain, the one I would recommend anyone have if you are in a long-term hospital situation that basically sends out messages of what you need. It was a big step for me to take 
but was also part of the power of the healing and recovery journey. I was learning to ask and receive in a way I never had before. So a month later, when I knew I needed help figuring out how to get my own children to Atlanta to see Archer regularly, and I knew it would be expensive, and I lamented that on my text. Ned told me he had some frequent flyer miles I could use for the SEMT kids, and that sparked my thinking that maybe other people might consider donating their frequent flyer miles too for Archer's friends. I felt giddy like God had just planted a great idea in my head. But it was Ned, his offer, that started it. I had no idea of how it all might work, but it was also Ned who stepped up to help me figure it out. He was like an answer to a prayer. Truly. And here's how it happened, through Ned's eyes. And I learned some things I had never known. The travel concept first started with actually helping raise money for the flight for Archer down to the Shepherd Center. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. The $25,000 doesn't, has to go on your credit card, not right. covered by insurance. Right. And I'm, I don't remember exactly how we got tied into the loop with it, but, but our mutual dear friend David Demuth and I ended up sort of, I, I think Shepard agreed to pay for a part of it or something. They did. There was a, I don't remember what part, but it was a significant part, like right. $5,000. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of it you all had put on a credit card. And, and so David and I agreed to, or offered to, or maybe we never even told you. No, this to, is coming back. But to, I but I remember it as being Dave, David, yeah, Moose. Moose, yeah. So we, I didn't realize it was Moose and Ned. Yeah, so anyway, we, we raised some funds. And, and I guess you and I must have been texting at that point about something. And, and you said, you, you, unlike you, although now you, you've become very good at it, opened up. You didn't tend to do that as much back then um, in a text or some way and said that you didn't quite know how the family was going to get back and forth, but it was really important to you and to Billy to be able to be in two places. And you said something, you suggested something, I'm sure, like, you know, maybe I can lean on some old business friends or whatever, people that have extra miles. I completely remember this. Yeah. I completely, and you're right. I, it is not something that I was accustomed to doing. Mm -mm. You hate to ask for help. Right. I do. Yeah. And. I did. Yeah. That would be a better way yeah, to say Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's great. Um, so I said that, I think I'm sure I said that I know maybe I know some people that have some miles and, you know, I think we all were operating under the premise that we could just grab a bunch of miles and have them transferred to you and it'd be no big deal. Right. The, the glitch, and this was a big one, was that Southwest wouldn't allow people to transfer miles without it. There's a transfer fee. So it was $10 per thousand miles to be transferred. And every flight was like 20 or 30 or 40,000 miles. And you guys were going to need to fly a couple times a week. So those $10 fees were going to add up 
and almost being the price of a ticket. Exactly, and and obviously the airlines know that, which is why they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we the the first theory was we had some connections through somebody that's in the fundraising world at Southwest, and we thought, well, we could just get them to waive it because of course they'd waive it for Archer, and they came back and said no. no. <laughs> But we do have a program that Shepard's a part of where we have a couple of airline tickets for free. We needed more than a couple. Yes. <laughs> so so it just sort of evolved, Louise. I mean, it just sort of evolved to realizing, well, that but you can make a reservation for someone else on your account. That's right. And so we learned that. And I thought, well, okay, so that is a way to do this, is, is that when one of you or your kids um, wanted to fly to or from Atlanta, just let me know and I'll find out some people that have miles and I'll just call them and say, hey, can That's you make... That's what was so extraordinary, yeah. Ned. Because for me, and I do still have a lot of this in me, you don't want to burden somebody who's giving you a gift to then have to spend the time to, you know, set it all up for you. I just was like, oh my gosh, no. But you have no idea how gratifying it is to be able to help somebody mm. when you feel helpless. Oh my gosh. Well, we were made for each other. <laughs> It was extraordinary, because I was knee-deep in learning how to ask, and perhaps more importantly, how to receive. You might be the same way. It's easier to give than receive when you have a lot of resources yourself, like talent, health, time. But it was really my pride that was in the way of my learning to receive. As the cards in the mail continued to arrive and the prayers continued to pour in, I was learning. I was living in to Orans. It was a vulnerable place to be and I opened my arms like, here I am, Lord. And I remembered a sweet song I had learned as a child. You might know it too. Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you This is what happened with the frequent flyer miles when we were at the Shepherd Center. I mean, so filled with gratitude and so helpless. Well, and and you know, I was just a catalyst for all this, right? I mean, there were, I think there were, well, I emailed and, 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 you know, email chains there went out. There were hundreds of thousands. Hundreds and hundreds of people that 
we reached out to, and, and again, you know, 20 people probably sent emails out to others. And I was just the coordinator. And, you know, so people would email me and say, I've got 10,000 miles. And this person would say, I've got 60. And this one would say, I've got five. And so we just maintained a spreadsheet of all these miles and all these people. And you or Billy or one of your kids or your siblings or whatever would, would call me and say, Hey, you know, can I get to Atlanta on this day? And I'd look at my spreadsheet and, Oh, there's somebody, you know, we can do it with this, these miles and these miles. And the whole idea was to be able to keep those kids coming right. to keep Archer spirits up. Right. So every weekend we tried to have a sent a family member right. and at least one. And of course they came in pairs and yep. sometimes in, you know, triplets and yep. Yep. quadruples and so forth coming down. And that's what, Ned was coordinating. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, again, just so gratifying to all the people who donated miles. Oh, my God. I mean, they were coming out of the woodwork for these. I mean, I'd get random emails, people I've never even heard of, saying, hey, I hear you're coordinating miles for the Sens to get to Atlanta. I've got, you know, this, and I've got this. Or I can't do that, but I've got Delta miles. Can you use that? I mean, people were so generous. It was overwhelming, the generosity that that I saw on your and Archer and your family's behalf. It really was. I think we had something like, all tallied up, something like 900,000 miles oh available to use for your family and, and friends. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, people were so generous. They were so generous. It, it was amazing. It was one of those experiences I will never forget how others' generosity can transform your life at low points or at pivotal turns. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And what it did, too, was that generosity totally relieved a huge psychic void. What am I going to do? We've got to coordinate in the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because it was, it was so consistent. Right. And I love it because we got to a point where you're like, you know, who's coming? Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember at one point I said, Hey, I texted Billy and said, it looks like you don't have coverage for Archer this weekend. And he's like, yep. I just realized that. And then he sent me your family the link to the family who's got Archer website. Right, because right, we had a whole nother and then I was spreadsheet like, okay, going. Oh, good, so I can now see both sides of the equation. I can help. <laughs> yeah, the logistics really are just amazing. Right. Yeah. For amazing. sure. Well, for sure. Thank you again. Well, I thank, thank all the people who donated. You know? I, and I thank I them mean, too. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I, I thank you, everyone. There were like 60 people who actually or made their miles specifically available. I mean, hundreds more that inquired and wanted to know how they could help. Wow. I mean, there are just so many people, though, you know, again, from all walks of life, just wanted to know what they could do to help. And this was a small thing that people could do that was meaningful to you. Yes. Those frequent flyer mile donations were very meaningful. 
and it might be something you ask others to help you with if you ever find yourself in a catastrophic situation where keeping your child connected to friends to lift his emotional spirits was as important as the physical rehab. Ned Inslee was a major coordinator, and it was nearly a part-time job with all the planning that went into it. Maybe you will be a frequent flyer contributor, or maybe you will be the Ned for your friend. Archer really needed to see his friends on the weekends, as it seemed the new challenges presenting themselves at Shepherd were never-ending. Archer's ongoing struggles with breathing and the equipment mishaps kept him from participating in full sessions of rehab. The Shepherd medical staff seemed baffled by his lack of progress off a ventilator. I would explain his history. They didn't know. So another battle was beginning to ensue with the difficult non-release of medical records from Atlanta Care to Shepherd. I was baffled by why we couldn't get our records from them. I had asked a number of times, and I had filled out forms, both at Atlantic Care Hospital and at the Shepherd Center. When would we get them? Shepherd needed them, as they had a number of questions that only the medical records could answer. I did have all the photos I had taken of x-rays and scans, and I had my medical journals of daily notes. They came in very handy as a decent workaround. But you know what else I had that was even better? I had in my phone contacts, the cell phone numbers of a few key doctors back in Atlantic City. It was a stroke of good fortune that I had thought to ask them an even more lucky, a blessing that they were willing to give me their cell phone numbers. I remember thinking back then it was like a litmus test when the doctors would give me their cell phone numbers, <laughs> like separating the good guys from, well, from others who were just not willing or who told me some nonsense that it was against hospital policy. One doctor even told me it was a violation of HIPAA. He wasn't the only one. Nurses, too, at Atlantic Care would often say this if I asked to take photos of doctor's notes or photos of x-rays around Archer's progress. I wondered if they understood HIPAA. He was a minor and I was his parent. We are the patient. Who was being protected? But it was the doctors who really cared about their patient's well-being who, without seemingly a second thought, gave me their cell phone numbers, and they told me to call them anytime about anything if they could be helpful. I was so grateful. I didn't imagine I would need those numbers, and I promised each one of them I would never abuse the privilege of having their personal number. But here we were in Atlanta now, and I needed to make a call to that cardiac surgeon.
I wrote my family and friends. I texted the cardiac surgeon in New Jersey to see if there might be confirmation of the pacemaker parameter settings because Atlanticare only sent a scant amount of medical documentation out of the likely reams of pages in digital memory. We had nothing here regarding documentation of Archer even having a pacemaker or even the surgery. I had to tell them and show them. I felt both relief and deep gratitude that the cardiac surgeon texted me back within minutes confirming that Archer indeed has a DDD pacer, which is programmed and managed ventricular pacing on, which allows him to pace in the atrium and conduct to the ventricle. So he would not pace in the ventricle unless absolutely necessary. Lower rate 60 with hysteresis of 50. He thought the upper rate was either 120 or 130. So, at the next treatment, four hours later at midnight, the rehab nurse took Archer's pulse the old-fashioned way, while the respiratory therapist took his pulse and oxygen saturation rate on Archer's other hand via a finger monitor, while the respiratory machine tracked both from the leads during the CPT vest treatment. Archer's pulse was definitely racing in all three methods, so the 150 to 155 on the monitor was an accurate reading. But then Archer would settle back to 112 or thereabouts after the CPT vest treatment and would register absolutely no symptoms of feeling his heart race or discomfort at all during or after the chest shaking treatments. Archer told us he liked them because he benefited from them in their rhythmic every four hour jolt sessions. He was completely calm through all of this, including the team of four racing over from the ICU having watched his monitors from afar. So, at the end of the last session, the pulmonologist declared the cardiac situation one they would not be worried about. It was an artifact of the vest shakeup treatment. I did worry, though, about all the firings of the pacemaker. But they say Archer is young and his heart can withstand that. So that is what was thrown into the mix of yesterday. I was able to interview Dr. Mohammed Elnahal years later in New Jersey. You'll hear more in the next Trauma Healing Learning that accompanies this episode with Dr. Elnahal. Here's an excerpt on our looking back about his medical care of Archer. Well, it, it is a unique indication for needing a pacemaker. It's not something that we see every day with uh, 
this type of indication, of course. So. I really am too, because that was just it. I was fumbling, like, is this expected? We're trying to figure out spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. You know, is this part of it? And it's like, no, this is not really the typical or what, what one would see through mm-hmm. spinal cord injury. So I was, I was really enormously grateful. And we were at a time, you actually allowed me, and I began to call you. We were at a time when Archer was really getting worse and we were running out of options. I felt I, I was looking for a partner who could work with me to answer my questions because I know nothing about medicine. I know nothing about the heart or the lungs. And to make these decisions together, I was looking for something that was trustworthy and, and somebody, some person I could trust. And you gave me your cell phone number. Then when we had our more one-to-one and that was recorded, you made sure you wrote it down again for me on, on a card. And I'm just curious about that. Do you remember any of that? I don't remember the actual day that I gave you the phone number, but it's not something that's unusual for me to do, to, to, to give number directly to patients from family members to call. Yeah. And I love that, that you it's, are, it's that's just, not unusual uh, for you. Highly unusual for most other doctors. Oh, I mean, listen, I mean, I mean everybody now is getting 10 million calls a day for robots and hackers and stuff that is not, the cell phone that we carry is annoying enough that phone calls from patients have never been a problem for me, and I, I don't think it really should be. Yeah, well, I thank you for that. It's kind of what I think of as relational medicine. Yeah. Here's what else Dr. Elmahal had to say. If I recall, I mean, I, I was devastated when I was told that there is a young gentleman that had this type of injury because a few years back, we did have a friend that also had a son that did that, but it was in a swimming pool. And I do have a swimming pool here in our house and kids and the friends come and and I've always been concerned since this happened to my uh, friend's son that accidents like this can happen. I've actually never imagined it to happen on a beach because usually people don't die. At that time actually I was also going through a lot of personal things with my kids I can't say I was emotional, but I was affected. I was deeply affected, and I did. I wanted to know how this happened. So it was not just, oh, it happened. I was interested to know how it happened. And did he pass out first and then got into the injury? Or I think you explained to me how it happened. And uh, the result was, of course, didn't look like this is going to be something that will recover completely. And uh, you kind of was settling into this, knowing that this is going to be not just a recovery. However, if you recall when I explained to you what we're going to do, said that if neurologically he recovers and he starts having uh, his own sympathetic 
innervation going down to the heart, then the pacemaker may not be needed in the future, and yeah. certainly it can be removed. I do remember that. You know, Dr. Elna Hoff, you were the first person at Atlantic Air who asked me how the accident happened. And at that moment, I was so moved because that's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about my son. And it was actually an emotional moment for me. Dr. Elnahal's taking a personal interest in Archer's injury and in Archer also allowed me to tell him about Archer's medical history. After all, he was coming in as a cardiac surgeon when many other doctors had preceded him in treating some aspect of Archer's complicated spinal cord injury. I was learning in a short period of time not only how siloed the medical profession is, but also how doctors don't have the histories that they need and all the access to medical records in the world might not be as efficient as the account from the patient or a family member. So I told Dr. Elnahal about Archer and he listened and took it all in. We had not done the pleurodesis surgery yet. It came the next day after we had met, it had not been, no one had talked about it. It was not on anybody's radar screen. And they had been trying to, he had three chest tubes in at that time, trying to drain his lungs. Mm -hmm. And um, that was not going anywhere as well as anyone wanted to because the original thought was they would just be in for two or three days. And we were now into three weeks. Then there was the blood pressure deviation from the standard of care that I then asked you about that you were gonna check into for me. I've been so grateful. Then there was the heart attack, heart attacks that he had. And then the one in particular, it was over six minutes. And that's when we really thought we had lost him. So all of that had taken place days uh, before you entered the scene with this conversation, like what are we gonna do? And the idea was to pace him because the temporary pacemaker you taught me would be a bad thing to continue because it would cause pain. And the dopamine and the other drugs that are in that family are bad long-term alternatives. If his heart was, I forget what you had called it, but in the middle of the night stopping, that's what he needed help with. Mm -hmm. And that was what became most convincing to me. And then I was very interested in, could it be temporary, not a temporary pacemaker, but could it be implanted in that moment? True. My conversations with Dr. Elnahal 
in New Jersey, lingered in the back of my mind as I interface now in Atlanta with one of the two new pulmonologists on Archer's medical team at Shepherd. A holistic view of a patient is so important, even for a highly specialized doctor. I continued to write to my family that night. And as for what got tossed into the evening, arrogance. And it pierces like a sword in the back or a knife in the neck. Even the committed and good person doctor can be so arrogant in a flash. I suppose any of us vested with knowledge that others do not readily possess can fall prey to arrogance. Mm -hmm. We must be on alert for this power currency so as not to abuse it. I have found in my mediation work over the years with physicians of every stripe and facility that it's so easy for them to second-guess the other and not take responsibility for the fallout, which is the doctor using medical jargon and speak that most people can't understand and gets away with a lot of not having to explain further because it's intimidating. So here I was last night in the second cardiac and lung episode with the pulmonologist at hand asking questions about my concern for the firings of the pacemaker, wondering if the settings could be changed or turned off and asking how the pacemaker might limit the course of treatment for Archer. These are real concerns and I was hoping to have thoughtful answers. Instead, I got, we don't like pacemakers. He never needed it. I'd like to turn it off, but you can never take it out. I would have never put one in. He could have been treated with tubutylin for a couple weeks until he didn't need it anymore. I was devastated to hear this. It would have been so much more professional and compassionate to say that he thinks he may be able to get Archer off the pacemaker and perhaps could have even experimented with a drug that has a side effect of speeding up the heart and used just through that period. I could have heard that and even possibly have been wistful that we didn't do that. But to summarily and even smugly say he never needed the pacemaker and it now limits what they can do to help Archer and that he never would have put a pacemaker in and that we would never get it out was devastating in that moment. This doctor, he's on the rehab side he wasn't there to watch our lion-hearted boy flatline three times in cardiac arrest, one for many minutes. He wasn't there in the dead of the night to watch six men beating the back of our child and yelling, demanding, commanding Archer to wake up, trying to revive him. 
He wasn't there in our complete weakness and vulnerability to rely only on God's grace and the intercession of the Blessed Mother. All I can think of in this moment as I write you is that sad, beautiful American spiritual lament. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? That's what it was like. And then I'm thinking, if it were true what he said about Tibutalin, I wish the spinal cord injury profession with their specialties and honed knowledge might collaborate with each other more where trauma docs could exchange wisdom with rehab docs and vice versa. Wouldn't that be amazing for spinal cord injury patients? Wouldn't that be amazing in general? When I've noted this in my mediation work between different departments of physicians, the answer to the question, have you considered collaboration, sharing knowledge across departments to be truly patient-centered and finding the highest safety standards? The answer was always not enough time. It seems to me, though, that the real barrier that prevents such knowledge exchange is arrogance. And none of us is immune from this form of puffed-up pride, strutting and masquerading as jargon or knowledge or being passed off as being too busy or too important and not enough time. I know that might sound harsh, but the medical profession is so gifted in their knowledge and experience, and it could be used for greater good, making more people experience greater well-being, including the physicians themselves. If they were to collaborate more or adopt a collaborative mindset, it could be done through quality dialogue. But that would take humility. Oh, the physicians I know who have that quality are amazing. We need more of them. I thought about the cardiac surgeon from Atlanta Care Hospital, whom I had texted, Dr. Mohammed El-Nahal. I thought about how grateful I was to have his phone number and how grateful I was for his immediate reply to a medical question related to his care. We needed the answer to now, so many miles away in Atlanta.
As I looked back with Dr. Elnahal, I was also struck by how much more efficient it can be to have relational interactions, direct and accessible interactions between the patient and doctor, a real human relationship. To me, these patient-doctor connections were hallmarks of quality medical care. They even predicted the efficiency of obtaining critical medical information quickly rather than wading through massive amounts of medical records. Here's what else Dr. Elnahal had to say. You know, oh my gosh. there's a question, yeah. there's something in the care that needs to be explained. You take care of it right away. You don't go through a service and a covering physician. Just cuts no, out so yeah. much of the delay and the fat and all the, and what can lead to consternation, I think, and anxiety as well. Yeah, with, without a doubt. You know, I also really remember very much that when we had our family meeting, there were, you were also joined by somebody else who, who came to mean a lot to me, and that was Ray Tolucci. Remember Dr. Ray Tolucci? He was the chief of trauma. Oh yeah, look, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was, he, he too began to realize we can't be waiting. So he would show me directly, you know, like MRIs and things I needed to see. And I was just so grateful for that because it was very hard to get records. Well, that was probably one of the best times that you probably interacted with intensive care. I was angry with Atlantic Care for not providing records. I realized as mishaps and codes happened in the middle of the night at Shepherd that I had most of what they needed in my medical journals, notes, and the photos on my phone. But there was so much I didn't have or even know how to have written down or to take a photo of. I just didn't know. And I was angry that I didn't know what I didn't know. But I did have that photo of Archer's pacemaker I took before they inserted it. And I had the serial number of it. I did have a hunch that it would be a good idea to have it. It was the key to helping us help Archer as it identified the company. And I also used the information to identify Archer when I texted Dr. Elnahal. But you know what else? As I thought about that cardiac surgeon back in Atlantic Care, I also remembered our conversations, a number of them, and how he was one of the only ICU doctors who inquired of me. He took the time to ask me questions about Archer, about how his injury happened, about the running and the dive and the sandbar and the seawater and the drowning. And he asked about Archer. And I thought about the incredible difference that made in how Archer was treated by him or how I felt Archer 
was medically treated by this doctor. I felt a connection to him because he created a connection with us. And you know what else I felt? I felt angry that our Shepherd Center rehab doctor hadn't asked. She didn't know how Archer was injured. She didn't know what all Archer had already been through. She didn't know about the bacteria from the seawater and what that meant to his lungs and the degree of his injured spinal cord, which was severed, so he didn't have the physical capacity to move a diaphragm, to then move the lungs, to then help him breathe, to live, so he could then do her rehab. She didn't know or understand why he was still fighting for his life. I think she saw him as weak, a C4 quad, not trying hard enough. I was angry with her for not asking or taking any interest in what had happened. If she had, she would know it would explain things. And the rehabilitation could be to help Archer breathe. And if she knew, she'd have compassion. It would create a connection between Archer and her, between us. If she would ask, I would know she cared. And when she learned, she would care. Why don't doctors take interest and ask? I would tell her. But now, she wasn't even coming to Archer's room anymore. All of this was dawning on me hard. And I felt very constrained. I couldn't even write my family and friends about it because I didn't want to jeopardize Archer's treatment in any way. It's unreal what Archer had been through. I mean, maybe this was what every spinal cord injured person goes through. I didn't know. Maybe she didn't need to ask because this awful journey is standard, de rigueur. And it's all the same to her. I didn't know. But what I did feel is that she didn't care. And she wasn't responding. And what I did know is that if she did care, or if we felt she cared, we'd have a connection. We could have it now. And that connection, that would be powerful rehab. Amidst so much craziness, I was grateful for the doctors who established relational connections. I was grateful for Archer's friends maintaining their close connections to Archer. And I was grateful to all those frequent flyer mile donors. It was a big deal that Archer had even made it this far to the Shepherd Center. They were not 
going to send Archer home. No, no, not yet. I couldn't allow them to do that. I was also full of thoughts of how I would get home to see Dutch. I was not just a mom of one. I was a mother of five. I kept telling myself. And Dutch was my youngest at home now without me for over a month. And I was working on a plan to work for how I could also get to Kentucky to start a mediation for a large matter. And I didn't want to leave Archer's side. Well, this is what I did write to my family and friends. So I was still haunted by my concern about the pacemaker firing as it did and it didn't swear with me to pass it off as an artifact. Early this morning, as the other pulmonologist came by on rounds, he reiterated that they were not going to worry about it. It was just an artifact. He also explained that Archer, as an athlete, may have a heart rate at 170 when he's on the field, so that the CPT vest just tricked the body. That was helpful to me and made sense. Okay. He turned to leave the room, and I called after him in the early morning light. Wait, Dr. Zadoff, I'm still concerned about those firings of the pacemaker. Regardless of Archer's age and the ability of his young heart to take it, is it possible to have a consult with a cardiologist? There have been two who have stopped by, friends of friends from Emory, in the last few weeks, and maybe we could call them in, or I could consult with other cardiologists in Baltimore, or you could call the surgeon who put in the pacemaker. I also told him, I found it arrogant that his partner summarily dismissed the pacemaker, and I'd like another opinion. He graciously said he would get a consult. It was a good interaction. About two hours later, when rounds had changed, the other pulmonologist came in and honestly had the audacity to say, I have decided we can't just pass this off to an artifact, and I have decided to call in a cardiologist who will be here to do some interrogation of the pacer, and so we don't want your son to move out of bed until that is complete. And you're lucky, because it's a cardiologist I would send my own family members to, and he will be in the ICU with another patient this morning and can come over here afterwards. I bit my lip and said, Thank you. I'm glad the other doctor followed up with you on my concern. As we waited about 90 minutes, the cardiologist from the next door hospital and four white-coated physicians and interns trailing him entered Archer's room, plus two women with the Medtronics computer.
He introduced himself, asked me a number of questions about Archer and the pacemaker and surgeries and length of time and about my concerns. Before he was about to give me his opinion, based on the information provided by me from his inquiry, I said, before you tell me your views, I'd like you to know that I do not take kindly to summary statements that the pacemaker should have never been put in, is too late to remove, and will interfere with future treatment needed for my son's recovery. This has already been stated to me. I find such an approach arrogant, not kind, not compassionate, and untruthful. It doesn't aid in the best decision-making for understanding what can be done now. So please think about what you want to say to me before you say it, and how to say it so we can have a decent dialogue about this. He nodded and began in a most gracious and informative way. He said he puts in and takes out pacemakers usually within a year, but has done so after 15 years. It all depends on the degree the wires get scarred into place on the veins. And if you need to remove the pacer and the wires won't pull out, he can use a laser to cut away the tissue. It doesn't have to be an absolute. It's probably one in a thousand chances that Archer may need a pacer if they change the settings and turn off the rate responsiveness and switch the mode so that it only paces if the heart goes above 160. If Archer has a premature beat, they can compensate for that too. There is no way in the world he would want to take it out, though, anytime soon, even if only one in 1,000 chances Archer needs it because of all the other healing he needs to do. <laughs> I really appreciated this exchange. Well, with that, the two women with the Medtronics case literally programmed Archer's pacemaker bedside with a box placed over the pacemaker and the settings changed on the computer screen carried in the blue box. And I asked the cardiac doctor, and if Archer has a creative miracle and is running on an athletic field and has a heartbeat of 170, then what? That doctor didn't skip a beat. And he said, well, then we can reprogram the upper track to 210. So the pacemaker is essentially turned off, except for extreme situations eliminating RV right ventricle pacing and is pacing in the upper chamber only. Yay! And something else amazing in the middle of all of that happened. Literally, while awaiting the sonogram for the blood clot in Archer's leg and also having another CPT vest shakeup treatment as part of the monitoring for the heart issue with his heart racing, Archer was smiling. 
He likes the shake-up treatment. And the therapist said to Archer, It's like a big hug, isn't it? And Archer smiled. And I laughed and said to Archer, Yep, like a bone crusher. Like Dad's bone crusher hugs. And the respiratory therapist said to Archer, Your dad a big hugger? And Archer smiled. And I said, Oh, yeah. And Archer then mouthed to me, Ah, remember, jump hugs. He was very bright and totally lit up. And I asked, What was that, Arch? And he mouthed again, Jump hugs, remember. And he began in a very animated way to explain to the therapist that he and his brothers, one at a time, would stand in the wide hallway steps and jump into the arms of Dad. And they'd get bold and go up more steps, further away from Dad, and more daring in the jump. And Archer would go to the highest, the fourth step, and sometimes the fifth. And I wouldn't allow him to go higher, and he'd jump. And it was like flying into his Dad's arms, he said. He was so animated, and he really smiled, and he seemed to relish that. Jump hugs. And then he said, Mom, remember group hugs. Yep, we've had a lot of those too, like major bone crushers. As Dad would say, group hug, and would gather us all together in one big mash. memories can be so sweet. Let's all think about a fond memory when we were little or when our children were little or when we were grown up and someone hugged us and it was real and tight and big and wonderful. That's the feeling I want to send to Archer to know that feeling of safety and love that he already knows, but that can be recreated in his body. It feels so good, doesn't it? It is such a simple act to hug someone. Sometimes it takes humility, but is so incredibly restorative. I closed my eyes and imagined Archer in a jump hug. It made me smile. I also felt the hot tears rolling down my cheeks. I needed one of those bone crusher hugs. I had to get home. I'll tell you more about that next time. And I'll share with you the rest of this crazy day. It was not over. But the day was on the wane. I had so much more to write my family and friends. But I'll end with this update entry I did send as I close with you now. 
something else so wonderful. A lawyer friend emailed me to let me know his rabbi at his synagogue referenced Archer in her sermon. Isn't that really lovely? It's like a big group hug. God wants us in a big group hug. We are all in this together. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion, Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning 10, an inside look at cardiac complications and spinal cord injury with Dr. Mohammed Elmahal. Thank you for listening. I hope you had some insights. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. I see that also knows we need to meet the emotional, spiritual, mental, and logistical needs of spinal cord injury families in this time of crisis, as well as help them navigate the medical terrain. The Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team is there for families 24-7 in the first 30 days of crisis. For more about the Blink of an Eye Medical Expert SCI Panel and Blink of an Eye Family Support Team, go to the parent nonprofit www.icthat.org. And if you know of a spinal cord injured family in the crisis hours, and days from injury, please connect them to www.icthat.org. We are so grateful to our donors and volunteers in this effort. And if you are interested in joining this effort to make a difference in the lives of those with spinal cord injury trauma, you too can be part of the Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team by making a financial charitable donation to help these families in crisis. You can also become involved in other ways. Here's how. 
for those of you who have lived through spinal cord injury crisis years ago and would like to help other families now, the Blink of an Eye Family Support Team is recruiting navigators. All those navigators selected will be trained by ICVAT in cutting edge trauma healing approaches, including conflict transformation skills, trauma-informed interactions, relational ways to impart medical information and work with intensive care units and hospital staff, and relational ways to advocate for the well-being of the spinal cord injured loved one. I see that through their blink of an eye services seeks to provide a transformative experience for families in crisis despite the devastation of a catastrophic spinal cord injury and to be an essential resource for hospitals nationwide.